Hello and welcome to the Warwick History PG podcast, where today we'll be talking about culture on the margins of the Ming Empire. My name is Adam Chaloner, and I'm joined by Jiaqi Liu and Sander Molinar, both of the University of Warwick. And to begin, can you both tell us a little bit more about yourselves and your research? So, Sander? Um, thank you, Adam, for this opportunity to share some of my research in this, in this uh, podcast series. And also thank you, Jachi, for this conversation we're about to have about Ming history. Um, it's not always easy to find Chinese historians in, in uh, history departments in the UK, let alone to find two of them who've worked on the same dynasty. So I'm glad we were able to put this uh, session together. Uh, I first started studying Chinese as an undergraduate at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Uh, languages and cultures have always been a fascination of mine, and I imagined I wouldn't find a, a more challenging uh, or a greater challenge than Chinese languages and cultures. But during my studies, I quickly realized that I was drawn to the history of the Ming Empire and to its maritime history in particular. Uh, after an exchange here in Beijing at the Beijing uh, Language and Culture University, I returned to Leiden and I finished two MA degrees in Chinese studies and in history. Uh, my thesis at the time was about the collective memory of Zheng He, a uh, Ming eunuch who is most famous for his involvement in a series of maritime expeditions in the early 15th century. I'm now a second year PhD candidate here at Warwick University. Uh, my research is concerned with the impact of banditry on the interaction between state and society during the Ming period. I specifically look at the border region between Fujian and Guangdong, uh, two provinces on the south coast of the Ming Empire. Um, and this particular region attracted my attention because banditry seems to have been an endemic part of life there which made me wonder how did the Ming state handle banditry and why did the state appear to be not very efficient at rooting out banditry on the south coast. So I hope to give some of these, uh, some answers to these questions during our conversation today. Cool, brilliant. And Jachi? Uh, so I'm Jachi. I got my undergraduate degree in Macau in history, and then I get my first MA degree in art history in America, in Kansas. That's when I became interested in a temple that locates at the margin of the edge of the Tibetan plateau. Um, and then I went there when I was halfway done of my first MA degree. And that changed a lot of my ideas about that temple. And then I, um, so I decided to continue doing research of this temple, although it is now a little bit not relevant to my uh, thesis as well as my PhD dissertation. But I think I will keep going. Um, so this the um this temple is located in the Tibetan region, but it is patronized by the Ming Empire, but actually the Ming Empress since the 1390s, and it just continued. And my major concern is actually the one commissioned by the fifth emperor of Ming in the 1420s, and he really changed a lot of things in the temple. It, he built a huge hall in the style of the main hall of the Forbidden City, which is very uh, rare because there is a sumptuary law in China. And he also painted a lot of murals in Chinese style. So it just got me interested. Cool. Brilliant. Thank you both. Um, now I'm going to come to you first, Jiaqi. And to get the ball rolling, we're going to talk about eunuchs. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about them and how they fit in with your research? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, eunuchs are very important and powerful in Ming history, although they are not very well recorded in historical records. Um, 
like Sandra just mentioned, Zheng He who has sailed to Southeast Asia, India, and Africa, he, he was probably the most famous one. But the others are usually neglected because they are not favored by the Confucian scholars who wrote the history. However, uh, when I look at the temple that I studied, I realized they are very important. And four eunuchs were actually sent to supervise the Shenda Emperor's commission there, and they were not chosen random, randomly. Um, thanks to the digitalized uh, historical records, I could browse their names, and also there are some art historians who had conducted some fieldwork at different temples, and that's how we know something about this eunuch. So the first eunuch, uh, was actually a old one. He was sent to lead a mission to Tibet by the Shender Emperor's grandfather. The second one is a devoted follower of Tibetan Buddhism. After this mission, he went back to the capital and he was asked to supervise more projects related to Tibetan Buddhist temple or, or just Buddhist temple in general. Uh, the third one, we have no information about him. The fourth one was a trusted one by the Shenda Emperor because he grew up together with the Emperor. And we know he was trusted because there was a Confucian scholars accusing him for doing some evil stuff with the power granted by the Emperor. I guess that's um, also how we know about the eunuchs in general. They were evil by nature, and when they are doing something good, they are representatives of the uh, emperor. They are the executors of the emperor's personal views. However, sending the eunuchs to Chitansu to this remote area definitely uh, reinforce the connection between the emperor and the temple. Uh, for instance, there is a wooden tablet erected by the uh, eunuchs at the temple, and this tablet says, long live the emperor in Chinese, Tibetan, and Mongolian. That's the group of people who live in that region. And to erase this kind of tablet, it reinforces the connections between the eunuchs as well as the emperor. But how? But I think the most important thing is with this tablet placed at the center of a Tibetan temple, it imposed a divine ruler in a Tibetan temple. And also, these eunuchs were there to urge, to encourage artisans as well as craftsmen to construct an, an architecture in imperial standard as well as presenting an architecture with a lot of details that could fit with an imperial project. Uh, for, there is something quite interesting that I found in the murals. Um, in a lot of Buddhist murals, they have architectures, and there are some small porcelain figures put on top of the roofs. But in most murals, these figures are very abstract. But in Chitansu, these figures are painted so carefully that it looks just like the one that could put on any roof. So I think the eunuchs were quite important in the project. Even though they were, we don't know if they have made their own decisions when they are supervising the project and their voices are not heard in history. But I think when we are looking at the project, well, actually not really this project, but a lot of projects in Ming history, I think we need to pay more attention as well as giving more credit to this group of people. Yeah, brilliant. That's really cool. And that then dovetails with your broader research on the imperial presence in the margins of the Ming Empire, correct? Uh, yes. Um, so, um, Chitansu is 
located at the edge of the Tibetan plateau, there was a place that is very hard to get access to because it's high up in a mountain that is very remote. Mm -hmm. It take me a long time to get there by in 2013. So we can imagine that how could this eunuch in the 1420s travel all the way from Beijing to Tibetan plateau. However, they were sent by the emperor. As a matter of fact, Shenda emperor was the first Ming emperor who decided to send his units together with a lot of artisans, craftsmen, and materials to Chutan Si. As a result, the project he commissioned and the and the architecture he created has a strong Chinese style. And I think this is probably something he had in mind, something he tried to convince the local people about his power at the margin of the empire. I keep saying that he created something very Chinese um, because in the murals um, there are Chinese style landscape um, and there are Chinese style architectures. There are Chinese human figures wearing Chinese style uh, clothes. However, this doesn't mean that the Shandong Emperor or the Ming imperial power could not produce something that is Tibetan or they could not hire some Tibetan uh, artisans or craftsmen. Instead, inside the hole he created, there are some gigantic uh, paintings, uh, actually mural paintings of Tibetan deities and they are in Tibetan styles and they are very high in quality as well. However, when we know that he could do something Tibetan, then the question is why he did something Chinese there? So I think he is definitely trying to emphasize his Chinese identity, emphasizing his power or his uh, this connection with these Chinese uh, traditions in the margin, trying to force the Mongolians, the Tibetans, to think about or to imagine what the core of the Ming Empire looks like. Cool. And on that point, actually, Sander, you're looking at the more remote areas of the region as well, but with a particular focus on banditry. So could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, um, I think that they're, they're, we're able to make a, a very good connection there because the south coast of the Ming Empire is often described as an imperial, imperial margin as well. And there are some reasons for this point of view. Um, the capital, the political capital of the Ming Empire was in Beijing, which is roughly uh, 1000 miles to the north of the south coast. Uh, but perhaps more important, the Ming Empire was founded on the taxation of agriculture. But the south coast, and I imagine Tibet as well, is not very suitable for agriculture. So in Ming society, the accepted form of interaction between humans and their natural environment is agriculture, the way that you order and organize your natural environment. On the south coast, however, the mountains and the sea were very dominant elements and fertile agricultural land was scarce. So people on the south coast developed uh, different relationships with their natural environment. For example, many of the coastal residents relied on maritime trade to make a living. Uh, but the emperors in distant Beijing, they made uh, private overseas trade illegal. So in their eyes, these maritime merchants on the south coast, they were responsible for the, the violent maritime raids that plagued the south coast at different times during the Ming period. The south coast gained a reputation for being unruly and uncivilized, a marginal region that was only one step removed from the barbarians who arrived by sea. And uh, speaking of barbarians, when we look at the south coast from a European point of view, this area can again be considered a margin of empire. 
So the Portuguese, the Spanish, uh, Dutch, British, they all occupied parts of the south coast or the islands in front of the coast. Uh, and to them, the south coast was the far end of their colonial empire, the distant location that produced exotic goods. In my research, I try to challenge the Sinocentric and Eurocentric uh, approaches to Ming history by placing that margin of uh, empire at the center. So in order to, uh, that's why I look at those two provinces on the south coast. And in order to place them uh, in a central position, I focus on case studies from the 15th century and the early 16th century because uh, this is the period before Europeans established their presence. So a lot of the scholarship of the 16th and 17th century is dominated by um, history written on the basis of colonial archives, like the East India Company archives. Uh, what I hope to do is study the South Coast in its own right, to understand the dynamic that gave rise to banditry before the Europeans were involved, and also to understand these bandits in their own context, not in the way that official Ming sources often depict them. So one of the figures that I study in my dissertation is a man from Fujian uh, by the name of Chen Wanning. He was arrested for a private overseas trade. So he was trading with um, uh, countries in Southeast Asia and he was arrested for this in 1446, but he managed to escape. So Chen Wanning gathered a group of followers and he sailed from Fujian to Guangdong, where he then entered the river Lian to attack Chaoyang city. Now these particular names are not important. What is important is the fact that this, this group arrived by sea without warning and surprised the city that was conveniently located on a navigable river. And in order to understand this particular event, we have to go back to the natural environment of the south coast. So if you look at these mountains, they're unsuitable for agriculture, which means that agrarian migrants to this area settle along the rivers. Like they're forced into this very, uh, these limited areas along the rivers mostly and along the coast. Um, some of these settlements grow, grew into larger uh, cities. And those were precisely the places where Ming officials would uh, set up their office and start gathering tax revenue from the surrounding countryside. So what happens is you get these uh, wealthy cities located along the rivers. And people like Chen Wanning, they preyed on the wealth that was gathered in these cities. He had been marginalized by this imperial prohibition against private overseas trade, um, which gave him a motivation to, uh, to attack this city. He also owned ships and he knew the coast very well, um, which gave him the means for this attack. And then the river provided him with easy access because the, the type of coastal ships that they use in coastal trade are also suitable for going upriver. So this gave him the opportunity. And Chen Wanning had uh, motive, means, and opportunity to attack. And afterwards, he returned to the sea where government officials could not easily follow him. So in the end, he also wasn't punished for, uh, for his crime, for his banditry. This dynamic between these maritime merchants and agrarian communities which stems from an underlying uh, friction between different forms of human interaction with their natural environment. This is one of the reasons why banditry was endemic on the south coast of the Ming Empire. Now, some scholars uh, describe this kind of conflict in ethnic terms as a struggle between Han farmers and non-agrarian indigenous people. But I think that approach is uh, too simplistic and binary. The work of James Scott is actually quite useful here. In The Art of Not Being Governed, he argues that people in the highlands of Southeast Asia were refugees from the oppressive state and lived deliberately stateless lives in the mountains. So if you think about 
uh, heavy taxation or conscription of men into the army, all different types of oppression by a state. And people try to escape from that type of oppression by moving into a natural environment where the state wasn't as strong uh, because the mountains are not very suitable for the type of agriculture that is the basis for most um, pre-modern, early modern states. Now, I would argue that these principles also apply to the, to the south coast of the Ming Empire. People there escaped from the oppressive state because taxes were too high or because private uh, overseas trade was made illegal in the case of Chen Wanning. So they found refuge in the mountains and at sea. And I would add that their conflict with the Ming state ultimately derived from their relationship with their natural environment, which came under siege because the Ming state promoted agriculture over anything else. Wow, that's amazing. And you mentioned there uh, the kind of Ming state and society. Could you maybe elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah, so I, I think looking at the natural environment offers uh, only one way of understanding uh, banditry on the south coast. South coast, But of course, uh, this ex explanation is more complex than simply uh, geographic determinism. One important element, I think, of endemic nature of banditry on the south coast is the interaction between government officials and coastal residents. For um, and I'll, I'll try to briefly explain how the, uh, the very large and very complex bureaucratic hierarchy in the Ming, uh, <laughs> um, how it was made up. But at the very lowest level of centrally appointed officials is the magistrate. So for most people, the magistrate is the uh, embodiment of the state. That's the person that they see who represents the emperor, which, uh, as I mentioned earlier, who is sitting some thousand miles to the north. So they, they will never see this person in their life, but they might have to deal with this magistrate. Um, but the problem here is that magistrates were generally appointed only for a period of about three years, and they were never appointed in um, the, the, the jurisdiction where they were born, where they grew up. So they always served in a place that was unfamiliar to them, which means that they had to rely on the cooperation of the population in that jurisdiction to be able to efficiently govern, govern them. And uh, just to give you an idea, a jurisdiction could easily number upwards of 50,000 people. So that's quite a large group of people to handle for someone who just arrives and is only there for a couple of years. So the way that they try to do this is they negotiate with influential figures from local communities. And then they rely on their influence to keep those communities in line. For example, uh, magistrates often negotiate with large landowners because these landowners already have a lot of influence in uh, local society because of their wealth, because they employ a lot of people. Um, and another example would be uh, captains of the militia. So the militia is a, a system where men from villages are grouped together and trained in case uh, bandits attack or in case there's any type of unrest and then the militia can help uh, assist in the defense of their village. Um, but the problem here is that landowners and militia captains didn't necessarily have the same interests. So it was difficult for a magistrate to keep all of them happy. On one occasion in 1448, in one part of Fujian, um, the landowners convinced the magistrate to arrest a militia captain. Now, for people familiar with Ming history, they know this story. This man was named uh, Teng Maoqi, and he stood up for the rights of tenant farmers and others who suffered from oppression by these large uh, landowners. So Teng Maoqi resisted arrest, and he started a rebellion that 
quickly spread throughout the province and even spilled across the provincial borders. And this turned into one of the largest rebellions of the 15th century. One of the reasons why this rebellion spread quickly is because the rebels were joined by those people I mentioned earlier, the refugees from the state who hide in the mountains. So the numbers quickly uh, increased. But the immediate cause for this conflict was the magistrate who sided with landowners against Teng Maoqi. So the magistrate had no cause to address systematic inequalities in his jurisdiction because he would only stay there for about three years. And he had to rely on influential figures like landowners because he didn't know his jurisdiction very well. In the end, the magistrate moved on, but bandits and rebels, they stayed behind. So this is another reason why this, the Ming state was not very efficient in rooting out banditry on the south coast of the Ming Empire. Wow, brilliant. Now, and this is a question for both of you. Um, I'm really intrigued by how you both approach the more kind of cultural elements of your research. I know, Jachi, you mentioned something on this earlier. And in particular, how Ming culture is extended and received in these particularly remote areas of the empire. So could you maybe both talk a little bit more about that? Um, Sandra, if you want to start? Yeah, I, I think one of the things uh, Jati mentioned earlier um, is about a Chinese landscape. And I think this is an, this is an interesting uh, concept, especially if you try to connect it to uh, a natural environment. So the, the Chinese landscape, um, there are certain, uh, certain patterns, certain ways of looking at mountains, for example, um, that were accepted. They were um, trends in art history and they don't necessarily have much to do with the, the actual mountains that the people live in. So I, I would like to give a, um, an example if you bear with me, uh, from a poem that was uh, inscribed on a stone stele somewhere in the late uh, 16th century. And this poem, this stele is um, found on the island of uh, Xiamen uh, on the south coast. Uh, for, for some Europeans, Xiamen is uh, better known as Amoy, the name that uh, I think Marco Polo gave to that area. But I'm not sure about that. Uh, but let me uh, briefly read you that poem to give you an idea of how did some people, and we'll talk about that more, I think, how did some people look at that natural landscape? So the poem uh, in, in my poor translation goes, uh, endless riches and peaks tower loftily before my eyes. They naturally reach into the skies. Rain-drenched slabs of stone shine with the color of spring, and the sandalwood in my fire gives rise to auspicious smoke. Personally, I believe that there is no room for hermits in this bright era, but still, I suspect there may be an immortal in this secluded place. The hours of leisure after work are just right for talk of the mysterious, but in the morning I lead my armies across the sea border. So I have to explain here that this uh, trope of a hermit who lives in the mountains, it is uh, an indication of whether uh, the emperor is a good ruler or a bad ruler. Because the idea is that people um, who are uh, good will be comfortable in a society that is ruled by a good emperor. But if the emperor is bad, then good people will have to withdraw from society in order not to be corrupted by bad society, by the bad ruler. So if there are no hermits at all, then that means that the emperor is a good ruler. So that line here saying that I believe that there is no room for hermits in this bright era it means that this emperor is a very good ruler. But then contrasting it by saying, still, I suspect that there may be an immortal in this secluded place, is really driving home the point that this is a margin. This is so far removed from the 
the deceit of civilization from Chinese culture that there might just be people who have to withdraw into these mountains. But I, I think the more important point here is that by creating um, a sense of empty, mysterious mountains, the, um, the writer of this poem completely erases the people uh, and the lives of the people who live in these mountains. So if you think back about that contrast between agrarian communities, the mountains, the sea, what is happening here is that someone who comes from that agrarian society, and let's call it Chinese uh, society for now, someone who comes from that society um, starts to paint a picture or paint a picture in words in my case, but literally painting pictures in the Tibetan temple of a landscape where there is no room for the people who actually live there. And um, one final point about this poem is underneath this poem are two more poems from other people who came later. And um, I mean, I'm not going to take up more time by reading those poems as well, but they uh, engage with that first poem. So they discuss the landscape in the same terms as that uh, first poem. So they strengthen that idea that these mountains are empty and mysterious. And in that way, I think they are contributing to a, uh, a discourse, a cultural discourse that leaves no room for the people who live there and who are not able to join in in that conversation. Cool. And Jachi? Yeah, I, I think cultural elements are quite important in the discourse that to to help people to imagine what an empire is and who is inside, who is the outside. Uh, actually, um, when I'm listening, I just remember that there is actually a dispute about the first architecture of the temple that I studied. Um, in a lot of Chinese resources, it, said, uh, it says the first Albert of the temple actually erected, actually built the first hall before he started to look for main patronage and look for main support. And the main emperor considered the hall built in Chinese style with Chinese roof and this uh, three bay uh, architecture style as his a display of his royalty to the main emperorship. However, in Tibetan sources, uh, usually it says that architecture is built by the emperor who would like to sponsor a Tibetan monk. So here we have a, a funny distinction between who was responsible for what. And the architecture or this cultural element is just one example of where the royalty is. And, oh, where am I? <laughs> uh, let's talk about the landscape painting because I already mentioned it. Um, Landscape painting became an independent genre in Chinese history, probably in the 10th or 11th century. And by mean time period, there are already a lot of patterns or convenience formula for people to use to employ to make a Chinese landscape rather quickly instead of going out to, to the farm and do sketches of a landscape. So um, these Chinese people will have a idea of what a Chinese landscape is. And in Chutansi in 1420s, when the Shenda Emperor sent his uh, eunuchs as well as artisans to this remote area, they decided to create some Chinese landscape, landscape there. But uh, I have to say this is not a usual decision. Uh, this landscape painting actually appeared as the background of the narrative of the Buddha. And this kind of stories appeared in many, many Tibetan temples because they need to explain who is the Buddha, why he is so important. 
Uh, but in most of these temples, human actually in most religious murals, I think human figures are always the center. We have some background information, like uh, we have we may have some horses, or we may have a a display of stable behind three men figure and then a couple and then a newborn baby then we quickly know what is going on we know who are those three persons but the main focus is always those people right or, or those gods um but in Chitansu, they have a very difficult situation to uh, to deal with because they have a lot of empty space to paint and to cope with these uh, requirements, instead of enlarging the human figures, they decided to add a lot of Chinese landscape, a lot of gardens, a lot of architecture, which are not common in other murals. It may be a big challenge for those artists, but they decided to go on that way. I, I'm not sure if they are just fond of landscape, which I don't really think so, because they must be professional artists working on murals, right? So the only answer to this kind of strange arrangement or decision is there are somebody asking them to show more about what a Chinese emperor uh, what a Chinese uh, palace looks like and what a Chinese landscape could look like. And probably when we think about who are the audience of this kind of mirrors, we can get a better understanding of the meaning or the function of the landscape because there are a lot of Tibetan and Mongols living in the region. And they might visit the temple because they are followers of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and when they approach that temple, it may be hard for them to recognize the imperial reference of the roof or, or the architectural style of the hall commissioned by the Shanda Emperor, because not many people know the sanctuary laws. But when they look at the Chinese landscape, which are different from theirs, I mean, the actual landscape outside, as well as the local tradition of depicting landscape. They will identify this as, as something re related to the Ming Emperorship and as a relic of his power or as his magnificent uh, technique and art taste. Cool. Um, I really love the example that you both gave there, but I imagine that kind of accessing this type of source material must be really difficult for both of you. And then once you do get hold of something, then interpreting the, those sources must be equally challenging. So could you maybe talk a bit more about that? Jechi? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, one, tr one tricky thing about the temple I have is it used to have a lot of records kept in the temple and it says who are the donors who donate what at what time period, but that record was burned down. So no one has that anymore. So I don't really know how people perceive this uh, main role in patronage in the 15th century. Uh, the only thing remained is the visual evidence. And of course, I cannot say that, well, uh, because I see this, so, uh, they must want to do something. I cannot just like anticipate their motivations and I don't know what are their perception as well. So this is a huge challenge. What I could do is only to look at some remaining sources, especially from the in imperial edits because the emperors would send some uh, imperial edits and copy on in stone and then erect it on the courtyard of the temple. Uh, those are very valuable sources. So I could only assess this kind of resources as well as some scattered uh, local gazetteer that was produced much later. Um, I tried to get these textual resources and create a historical gate. And with this gate, I look at the visual evidence and compares this visual evidence with some others 
produced in similar time period and or produced in nearby region. And by comparison, I noticed some different things and, and these different things may help correspond to the textual evidence and help me to enrich to enrich my understanding of that temple. That's all I can do. But I think this is still very helpful because the visual evidence always asks you, always force you to ask some question you never think about. Uh, I mentioned very early on that I have visited that temple and before visiting that temple, I noticed something that is very strange about that temple. The murals um, have certain orders because they are a narrative. It tells how the Buddha was born and what it did in his teenage uh, times and what he did after he became a, a teacher or how he died. But the order of this kind of pictorial program is reversed in Shitansu. I could not find any possible answers to this kind of strange arrangement and nobody really talked about it until I went to the temple and then I realized, oh my God, um, the hall uh, built or sponsored by the Shunda Emperor actually locates on a huge and high rising platform. And with this platform, nobody could comfortably access to the hall. So the platform actually separate. Well, it, of course, it highlights the importance of that hall, but it separates the hall from all the all other architectural compounds that existed before that hall. So the corridor became the only possible thing that could unite all the architectures in the temple. And this, um, this strange narrative uh, order puts that whole as the center of the narration as well as a point where people could not miss. So I think put reversing the order of the narrative could help visitors or convince visitors to get to the last hall and then start their reading of the, uh, the murals and surround and go around the temple again. Cool. So I Great. think there's uh, some limitation of visual, of visual evidences, but also some benefits of looking at some material object. Mm -hmm. Cool. And Sanda? Yeah, uh, Jaji, I, I like how you're combining written sources and uh, visual material. And when you were talking about this earlier, about the landscape, I noticed there, there are different layers. Like you say, the, the point of such a, a mural is uh, are the, the religious figures. So visitors to the temple basically get an education about the life of the Buddha, seeing all the different scenes of the life. And um, that that is the, the primary layer that may have been the intention of um, uh, that uh, mural and then the layer behind it is the landscape and it may not have been the intention of the uh, painters to um, to put a very uh, Chinese looking landscape in uh, such a Tibetan environment and but I, I think you rightly point out that it's difficult to anticipate or understand motivation so we cannot really go back and understand, is this what they intended or not? But then when um, I, I think you already circumvented that by saying if Tibetans or Mongols enter that temple and see the landscape, they would notice that it's different from the actual natural environment that they just came from. So I, I think that is one way of uh, understanding either written sources or visual material, not necessarily by understanding what did people want to say uh, when they made this, but how would people have um, experienced it? How would people have perceived it? And when I think about the interpretation of my main category of primary source material, 
which are local gazetteers. So to briefly explain, local gazetteers are um, kind of encyclopedia for specific jurisdictions with a lot of information that helps like population figures, uh, surface area of uh, agricultural land. It helps the magistrate to understand that uh, unfamiliar place where he's only going to be for three years. But there's also a lot of other information like local history. Um, and so I mainly look at those uh, those parts of the gazetteer. And my problem is that the gazetteers are written by um, literati, either the magistrate or local elites, educated elites, who are all um, participating in a Confucian uh, discourse. And the people that they write about, such as the bandits, they are, um, they are very rarely writing. So I can rarely see something from their point of view. So I have to interpret those local gazetteers, but trying to understand who were actually these bandits that other people are talking about. And I, I will give one uh, example. There, there's a kind of category of um, biographies about women, and this is not very nice, but about women who prefer to kill themselves instead of being captured and losing their honor or whatever it is. So this is a this is a Confucian discourse where it is your honor is uh, valued higher than your life. And in the case of women um, being married and being faithful to one husband for your entire life is more valuable than your entire life. So they have all of these examples of women who find very ingenious ways of killing themselves when they are captured by bandits. But by comparing all of these different biographies, you start to get an understanding of that, um, that genre. And I, I can imagine it's the same for temples, looking at all of these different temples, you get a feeling for the genre. So it's not necessarily about the intention of the author or the artist. It's about how does that genre work? And when you understand how the genre works, you can start to uh, see through it or reading against the grain is the common term. So in, in this case, um, when you read all of these stories about women being kidnapped, some of these stories have very interesting aspects to it. So we learned that um, bandits are proposing, bandits are capturing women who are not yet engaged, but are just the right age to marry. And quite often they are capturing the father or another uh, male sibling together with the woman that they capture. And then combining this with other stories about um, families uh, the family that stays behind, their daughter is kidnapped by a bandit and then suddenly the family gets quite wealthy. And what is behind this is most likely that this kidnapped woman is married to a bandit who um, who is both a bandit and a maritime merchant and that kind of wealth from his trade um, ends up with the, his in-laws, the, the family of the kidnapped bride. So looking, like understanding why these, um, how this genre works also allows you to move beyond the intention, I think, of the, uh, of the authors to actually get a better understanding of who are these people that they are talking about. Cool. Well, um, both of your projects sound really exciting and I wish you all the best in writing it. Uh, we are nearly out of time now, but I do have one final question for the both of you. Um, the past few months have been pretty rough for everyone, I think, but I couldn't waste this opportunity to get an international perspective on things. So, Sander, you're currently in Sweden, I believe, and Jechi is in China. So I wanted to ask both of you how you've both handled the pandemic, and in particular, what you've been doing for fun while the world has been, you know, 
on fire. So, Sander. Yeah, I um, I was uh, fortunate to uh, have left the UK just before travel restrictions came into place. Um, so I've I've been in Sweden now since um, since late February, I think, and um, the. I get most of my news either from the UK or from the Netherlands, where I'm originally from. And the situa situation there is very, very different from here in Sweden. Because it, here in Sweden, it's been very, very slow to uh, respond. Um, only in, in the last couple of weeks did we start to see uh, shops providing hand sanitizer for uh, customers. And uh, people are still going, uh, um, yeah, through their daily routines. Although I must say that a lot of people are working at home, especially people who work at university. And uh, we've also been working at home um, since early March already. Uh, so on the one hand, it, there's more freedom here um, to go out, to go shopping, to do all of these things. Um, but it's also been uh, a kind of isolating experience because it made me feel very foreign in, um, in a country where otherwise I would probably feel very much at home. But the, the very different approaches that my friends in the UK or my family in the Netherlands go through and what I see outside my window here made me feel like I kind of belong more in the UK or the Netherlands than here. So that's been a very, very strange experience. Um, as, as for how I'm dealing with this, uh, I, I heard in an earlier podcast that uh, David Fletcher, he mentioned that the lockdown is not that different from regular PhD life. And I, I think he has a point there. I, I have, I've always tried to go running several times a week um, just to get some fresh fresh air and also because I spent most of my days behind this desk. Um, and luckily I live quite close uh, on the edge of the city, so close to the countryside. So I can run without running into too many people and that keeps me relatively sane during this pandemic. Brilliant. And Jachi? That's nice. Uh, so when I came back here, the China is still a little bit crazy about the lockdown thing, although there are no more new cases in the, in the region I live. Uh, but I was forced to quarantine myself in my home for a few days because they identify me as a UK returner, <laughs> and that makes me dangerous. Um, so I was forced to stay home for a few days, and then they would send people to um, come here and ask what do I need and uh, if I need to throw away my trash or not. But those days are really hard. It's like living in a prison <laughs> while everybody are free outside. Um, but now I, I'm free as well, so I can go wherever I want to go. Uh, that's something good. I, I hope everything will go back to normal like here as well. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, well, thank you both for a really good talk today. Um, I hope you've both enjoyed it. I certainly have. Um, as ever, please do keep an eye out for the next episode of the podcast next week. But until then, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Uh...